Well, welcome to the Hills. It has been a next-gen kind of day. Hey, can we thank, at all of our campuses, can we thank our student and kids team for all the work that they've been doing to prepare for today? Just, just an incredible blessing. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and welcome to everybody who's joining us in person and online. My name's Taylor. I'm on our teaching team. I'm excited to continue our Rooted series. And while you're turning to Colossians 3, uh, just two uh, Hills family moments. The first is this. I want you to mark your calendars for April 30th. That is this year's Renew Serve. Renew Serve is a one-day service event that actually is open and available for intergenerational service. There's opportunities for, for families, for kids, for students, for adults, and we as an, a church spread out in three locations across our community head out to serve and love our neighbors, working with our Renew partners, local nonprofit organizations who help facilitate ways we can serve. Now, I want you to know you need to go to thehills.org renew in order to sign up, and it really is first come, first serve. Yes, that's a pun, but it's still important because if you don't sign up uh, soon, there's going to be fewer spots available and fewer options. So you, this is something you could do uh, with friends, with your family, with your community group, or you could even sign up uh, by yourself and you're going to be part of a group where you make some new friends. This is open to people who are, uh, whether you're part of the hills or maybe you're, you're just newer or kind of connected or not even a Christian. Anybody who wants to come with us and serve and bless our neighbors, we want you to join us. So you can find out more at thehills.org slash renew. Secondly, some of you know that we over the past several years have been supporting missionaries in Poland. And over the last two, uh, two plus weeks, there's an estimated over two million refugees who have come into the country of Poland from Ukraine. The need is great. And so, uh, Hills family, I want you to know uh, that tomorrow, I'm gonna be getting on a plane with a team led by our Kingdom Expansion Minister, Chris Shelby, as we go to meet with some of our Europe-based missionaries who have experience working with refugees, to go see what's happening on the ground, uh, to go and pray and discern, God, what part might you have for the Hills Church to play in responding to this crisis? Um, we, we're going with open hands and really asking God, is, is there a place for us in this story uh, to bring healing or redemption? And so I'd ask you to, to pray with us. Number one, continue to pray for peace, of course, as we've all been doing. Number two, please pray for our team as we travel, for our missionaries as they, they travel to meet with us. And, uh, and number three, would you just pray that God would, would make things really clear of, of how our church is meant to respond? So thank you for your prayers in that. All right, well, we're going to open up to Colossians chapter 3, continuing our, our series rooted in the book of Colossians. I'm going to start in verse 18 and read to chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. 
Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Now, in a moment, we're going to continue our next-gen theme a little bit later in this message. But first, there's something we've got to address here. Because for Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, these verses and verses like them in the New Testament can cause concern and discomfort because they're, they're kind of hard to explain. Wives are being told to submit. Slaves are being told to work for their earthly masters. And, and so it, it can cause these red flags and some inner alarm bells to go off. In fact, if, if you're with us for the very first time, I'm so glad you're here. And at the same time, I don't blame you if, if what you just heard might have confirmed your worst suspicions about the Christian faith. These passages can be confusing and difficult. So I'm so glad Rick asked me to preach today. <laughs> Seriously, I, in a moment, I want to speak to some of the concerns and questions that we have. But first... I would ask you graciously to set those aside for a second and consider this. What we just read is in fact in line with and a continuation of everything that we've talked about over the last six weeks in the book of Colossians. About Jesus and his his sovereignty over the world, his supremacy, about Jesus as Savior. And, And so here's the thing, you need to remember, we need to remember that these original hearers Before they heard these set of instructions about households, they heard a radical statement only moments earlier. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul said, here in God's family there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now that is still today, but especially was back then, a radical statement of equality that went against the cultural grain of the Greco-Roman world. And by the way, this is a consistent message inside the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has a very similar statement in which he also includes gender. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is part of what made Christianity like so different from the rest of the ancient religions because what Christians believed then and still proclaim today is that life with Jesus transcends human class structures and hierarchies. It creates a community that are bonded together by Jesus Christ first, not any earthly differences. And believe it or not, Today's passage about instructions for Christian households is actually brilliantly subversive and inclusive, even though that's hard for us to see. So let me give you some context. This passage is often referred to as one of the household codes. There are a few passages like this in the New Testament, and and yet there's also passages outside of the Bible from the same era. We've got examples of household codes from writers like Aristotle and Seneca and Josephus. And and here's the the normal playbook for non-Christian household codes. You talk to the man of the house, and you tell the man of the house what the man of the house needs to tell everybody else in his house about how they need to behave in his house because he's the man of the house. Have I laid on the patriarchy thick enough for you? Because that's how it operated. You, you talked to the patriarch, to the father, to the husband, to the master. That's who, that's who those household codes spoke to exclusively. Now compare that to what we just read in Colossians 3. Because the Apostle Paul, if you're taking notes, depicts a family where everyone has a seat 
at the table. That's what he does in this passage, but it's in ways that might not seem as important to us, but we've got to understand they were critically important to the original hearers. Here's what I want you to notice when we see a a family where everyone has a seat at the table. When we look back at this passage, let's look at first, who is addressed? Yes, we have, that's right, we've got men and fathers and masters, but that's the normal social playbook back then. In Colossians 3, there are women and children and slaves who are included, and notice this, they are not talked about, they are talked to, directly addressed by Paul because he is assuming everyone in that church has dignity and value because they are made in the image of God. And you've got to understand, that that was not at all how society in the Greco-Roman world viewed women who in many cases were considered as lesser and even as property of their husbands. Kids who were never part of conversations like this. Slaves who were very much uh, segmented and second-class citizens. But here in the church, they have a seat at the table. There are no second-class members of God's family. That's part of what Paul was beginning to tell these, this Colossian church who would have been shocked at what Paul did. Not just at who he addressed, but the next thing to notice is what is the order in which people are spoken to? The very first individual addressed is a wife, is a woman. Again, this may not seem important to us, but we've got to understand for the original hearers, this was like, whoa, are you serious? Like, wives go first. That would have been startling. Then when they get to to the socioeconomic, slaves are spoken to before masters. That said a lot about how everyone in this church family were valued. Last thing to notice about this text that we've got to understand. Ask this question when we look at these verses. Who's protected? So Dr. Esau Macaulay is a New Testament professor who, who uh, I heard him talk some about passages like this that deal with the slaves or vulnerable populations in the Greco-Roman world. And it's helpful to ask this question. Is, is this, are these commands part of God's original creational intent or is this God's way of minimizing the harm sinful people do to each other? Like in other words, when God made the world, is this actually what he wanted from the beginning or is God meeting sinful people where they are and beginning to bring healing by how we minimize harm? Look back at the passage. Husbands are asked to love their wives. Now that's creational intent as it should be, but they're also told not to be harsh. That's minimizing harm and protecting women. Fathers are told not to embitter or cause resentment in their children. That is minimizing harm and protecting kids. Masters are told to be right and fair, which is minimizing harm from unfair and unjust treatment. This passage actually does a lot to not only invite everyone to the table, but to ensure that they are all treated with dignity and justice. I hope you're beginning to see these verses, they're not nearly as oppressive or controlling as we initially see them. But the reason we see them that way is in part because of the context and baggage we bring. So let's address head on two two issues in the text, and I'm going to own, I don't have time to give a full treatment of either of these. There's so much that could be said. So if you have more questions, you're welcome to reach out to me. But to look at the topic of submission and the issue of slavery. I, again, I, I want to ask you to listen graciously. I'm gonna speak graciously in this limited format. 
So let's begin with submission. There's an important maxim that I've heard for a long time that I want to pass on to, to some of you, which is when you're dealing with something confusing or controversial in the Bible, you need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. That means that we look at other places in Scripture to see in a vacuum, is this, can I just take this and say, all right, isolate it, I'm just going to apply this. So, for instance, with the, with the idea of submission, throughout the New Testament, there are different passages uh, that mention submission and submission inside of marriages. And so, number one, we need to realize that submit doesn't mean obey. If Paul had, had meant that in an authoritative way, Paul would have used the word obey, but they're two different Greek words. Number two, the word submit can mean to sort of order your, order your life or position yourself around or with. And so think, think about this for a second. I would say submission, to define it, is a voluntary, relational posture and I think it's choosing to be for one another, to trust one another, to adjust and make room for each other. I think that that is an, an acceptable definition in part because of what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. There's a very similar passage where he says, he, where he talks about submission not only in marriage, but before he talks about the marriage uh, household, he talks about the whole Christian community. And he says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That wasn't just to women. That wasn't just to wives. That, that's to the entire Christian community, which means there's something we may misunderstand or project on the word submit that's not actually true. That's not an authoritative, domineering posture, which is why men in this passage are told, husbands are told not to be harsh. The Bible leaves no room for a, a, a harsh, domineering husband. Instead, marriages, well, I'm going to, if you have more questions on this, you can look at a message called We Over Me from our senior teaching pastor, Rick Ashley. A couple years ago, he did a marriage series. You can find it on YouTube. And I'm just going to give you my favorite quote from his message. Marriage is a submission competition. That it is us racing to the back of the line in how we love and serve one another. Husbands are told to die to themselves, to love their wives as their own bodies. So having said that, let's, let's move to the other part of this passage that especially confuses and bothers us, rightfully so, which is, rightfully, rightfully so, which is slavery. First thing to do is address our context. So ancient slavery does not equal and was not the same as American chattel slavery. It, so here's the two most common ways that slaves or bond servants were indentured and put into servitude. The first was economic uh, debt. They would incur enough debt that they voluntarily would sell themselves into slavery to work for a time in order to pay that back and then they would be freed. The second most common way that people were enslaved in these ancient times was during conquest and warfare. Now, just because it's different doesn't mean that their slavery was okay. Slavery is evil and wrong, bar none, full stop. But it still means we need to not project our, our American context onto how we understand this passage. Come back to creational intent. When God made the world, do we see a God who intended that some people would be and stay slaves? I just can't believe that. I can't believe that because if we let the Bible interpret the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when God made Eden, it was a place where all of humanity was intended to rule and steward all of creation, not rule over each other. 
I can't believe that because when God chose a nation for himself, he picked this little, this little nation people group, Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt. And then God's first act is to liberate them. And then he makes that story of liberation from slavery his calling card throughout the Old Testament. I can't believe that because of passages like in Colossians 3 that say there's no slave or free in the church. And I can't believe that because the one letter written directly to a slave owner, it's the letter of Philemon, it's written by the Apostle Paul, and essentially Paul says to, to Philemon about his slave Onesimus, who had come to faith in Christ, Paul says, he's more than a slave, he's your brother in the Lord. And then Paul, in like a, an incredible pastoral judo move, basically says, I know you're gonna do the right thing. And the subtext is the right thing is set him free and let Onesimus go back to Paul in order to serve the gospel. So I cannot believe that this is God's creational intent. I believe God is meeting sinful people where they are, slaves who may have come into faith, who have found themselves now Christians but still paying off a debt. What are the instructions? That's the context we should read this in. When we understand that, or at least consider that, I think this is a subversive, Christ-exalting passage that depicts, that, that depicts church as a community and family where everybody has dignity. Everyone has a seat at the table, and everyone has worth because they're made in the image of God and followers of Jesus. So a second important thing that I want us to see in this passage is that rooted disciples remain present with God in their daily life. I think this was actually more important for Paul and the Colossian church right, because they didn't have to work through as much as what we have to work through. When I look at this, it, it seems to us and certainly to me like a passage that has a lot of focus on human activity and human behavior. But I want you to notice how present the Lord is in all of these verses. I counted up the number of commands that people are given in this passage, and, and uh, not counting repetitions, there are seven commands. Seven commands, and guess what? In these verses, the Lord is mentioned and relating to what people are doing seven times. For just about every command, there is a reference and reminder of the Lord's presence and his relationship to our daily lives. The way spouses treat each other should be fitting in the Lord. Obedience pleases the Lord. We work or serve with reverence for the Lord, as working for the Lord. We expect from the Lord a reward. Paul says straight out, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. And even says the Lord is a master in heaven. God is so present, his presence, his relationship to us is shot through in this very mundane living room kind of passage because God is actually present with us in our living rooms and in everywhere that we go and in every place that we work or serve or learn. This is God's presence with us and rooted disciples understand that. So when I let go of some of my lenses that I wanna use on this passage, what, is, what does this actually depict? I see a community that acknowledges the worth of every person, no matter their age or status. I see a community where leaders and parents are encouraged to lead and love with gentleness, with fairness, and with righteousness. It's a church community in which the most vulnerable are brought to the front of the line, acknowledged and addressed first. It's a community that has people who see that their daily lives are enmeshed with their relationship with Jesus. 
These are households in which spouses know how to treat each other because their actions and hearts should be molded, fitted into the image of Jesus. It's a community where children in safe households know that trusting and obeying their parents is part of how they're following God. Where employees know that their work should honor God first because at the end of the day, their whole life is in service to him. And where anybody who has the title of boss or manager or director, employers know that God's the real one in charge. And as a result, they better be fair and kind in their treatment of anybody who reports to them. When I hear it that way, it sounds like a community I want to contribute to. It sounds like a community that the world needs more of. And it sounds like a church family where every generation is seen and valued and encouraged in their walk with Jesus. And that kind of brings us to our next and last part of this message. I told you we were going to continue our next-gen theme, and I really haven't talked a lot about kids. And that's in part because I have asked our next-gen minister, Jill Shelby, to do that. So this uh, last fall, we announced Jill joined the team, and she helps oversee all of our kids and student ministries globally to help create united vision to do what we've already been doing even better. And so having said that, Hills Church, will you give a big welcome to our next-gen minister, Jill Shelby. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited for you to get to share with us. What does this look like for the Hills locally? Well, thanks, Taylor, for um, giving me this space to share not only my heart, but the heart of the entire NextGen team, and really, most importantly, God's heart for the next generation. Church, he is pursuing the next generation. (laughs) So thank you, Hills Church, for being a church that ensures that the next generation has a seat at the table today. Because if they don't have a seat at the table today, they may not want to come to the table tomorrow. Haven't you loved seeing our kids and students lead us into the presence of God today? As we've been seeking the heart of God, God has said one thing loud and clear to us, and so I want to start with it. We've been asking, what's next for next gen? You know, we're coming out of this global pandemic and a worldwide shutdown and a whole other litany of cultural events and circumstances that we haven't seen before. And some of us wanna rush right back to doing the same things we've always been doing. But really, this moment has given us a chance to ask God, God, what do you want us to do next? What do you see? And here's what we're hearing loud and clear. Let them see me. Before we throw a bunch of programming back on the calendar, um, before we adopt a lot of events, God is saying to us, whatever you do next, don't let the next generation miss me. He's the point of everything. And you've heard this already today, but when we think about the next generation and the kind of resilient and robust faith they're going to need to withstand the cultural pressures of their future, not just to withstand, but to thrive and actually change the culture they're a part of because that's their God-given mandate. If we want to develop that kind of faith in the next generation, we need to recapture 
the two powerful influences that God designed to pass on faith from generation to generation. And those two influences, you already know them, it's the church and the home. We ran across a statistic, and Emmanuel, you wanna bring that up, thanks. We ran across a statistic um, when we think about maybe traditional church programming for kids and students, on average, our kids and students from church-going families spend about 40 hours a year in programming designed for their age group. This was really sobering to our next-gen team. On, on average, some more, some less, obviously. So if we're stuck with just traditional programming, this isn't enough. This isn't enough for the church to pour into the lives of the next generation, but if these are the hours we have where they come, we also wanna be super intentional about how we design these hours. <clears throat> and you've heard from our purpose statement, we wanna design them around the greatest commands. We're not gonna be able to teach everything or provide every experience, but we wanna prioritize the way Jesus prioritized around the greatest commands. And we also wanna prioritize around what you've seen today. We don't want to just fill our, our kids and students' heads with knowledge about God although that's super important. We want the things that they know to impact their heart and their hands. We want them activated. We want them actually living out that bigger kingdom story that they're a part of today while they're a part of our church. And so this is our commitment to you in Next Gen Ministry. This is how we're going to design everything that we do around those greatest commands. Okay, so church, now what about the family? If we right now have about 40 hours, and we're gonna talk more about how we can capitalize on those, how many hours a year do you think families have together with their kids and students? And maybe we can bring out our visual for that as you're thinking about how many hours a year? Here we go, here we go. <laughs> so, so parents, and by parents, I mean, Mom and dad, single parents, grandparents with their grandchildren, uh, foster parents, uh, I mean any kind of parent who's been, uh, who's, is stewarding the faith development of your ch the children in your home. You have about 2,000 waking hours a year with your child. That may sound daunting, but what I, what I wanna show you here is you are the primary disciple maker of your child. And I think we're in a moment in history when we're asking our families to step up, right? Here's the deal, this is what I want you to hear. What I'm asking you is, could we all today commit to reorient our families around the presence of God? Could we, could we give up any lesser story that we've oriented our family around? I think that's what it's gonna take if we want to instill the kind of faith I talked about earlier into the lives of our children. That's a challenge, but now I want to encourage you. You do not have to be a perfect parent. There are no perfect families. No perfect families in the Bible, right? Read the scripture again and you'll see the definition of dysfunction when you look at biblical families. And there are no perfect modern families, regardless of what you see portrayed on Instagram. There, were, there are only families. Broken families in need of the grace and redemption and restoration of God. So here, here's what I want you to hear, parents, families. God is ready 
to work in your family just as you are today. He's ready to work out his story of redemption in your family. He's just asking you to say yes. That's it. And he's wanting to use every single one of these hours. Some of these hours don't have to be that special. An hour, like the hour that you're rocking your baby. It's, it's the hours that you're playing at the park with your toddler. It's the hours driving your kids to and from school. It's the hours where you're mending scraped knees, where you're helping walk your middle school student through difficult relationships, where you're counseling your high school students to think about what's next for them in their future. God is interested in working in every single one of those and for you as a parent to use those hours to point them to Him. And families, we wanna be a church that equips you to do that. We wanna be a church that walks alongside you in doing that. Now, when you look at this visual, some of you already are thinking, well, the church and the home aren't always working together in this really great, beautiful way like I'm describing. And you know why? (laughs) Because there's an enemy. And just like God designed these two powerful influences to expand his kingdom all over the earth, first of all, in the hearts and minds of our sons and daughters so that they can walk out his kingdom wherever they go, that's God's design. We have an enemy and his agenda is exactly the opposite of that. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy, and he wants to snatch the goodness of his kingdom from the hearts of the next generation. Yeah. One way he does that is he deceives us and divides us against each other, even those two powerful influences of the church and the home. And what I wanna ask us to do today, church family and families of your children, is to commit that we are for each other. And there, there are no more powerful influences in the world than the church and the home. And we will not let Satan have his day with those two. Today is a day that I would like us to symbolically and maybe even physically to lock arms together, church and home, and say, not this generation, Satan. This is God's generation. This next generation is God's generation. You know, our senior uh, teaching pastor, Rick Atchley, he's introduced this God-given vision of ask for nations and generations, and we have been asking for generations. And you know, when you ask, God often says, well, what are you gonna do to be a part of the answer? And I think he's asking this church today, every single one of us, will, will we be a part of the faith formation of the next generation? And I'm talking to empty nesters, retirees, maybe people that don't have biological children of their own. You, I'm talking to you. God is saying, these children, these kids and students, they're our children, right? And he's asking each one of us to take our place in history and equipping and activating the next generation. So what is that vision? I really believe God has, has, has shared his vision with us for the next generation. And as I share it with you, you're gonna think it sounds familiar. It's because this is his vision for every generation. And you may be thinking, I don't see that happening. So what I'm gonna ask you to do today is to use a different kind of eyes because we serve a God who calls things that are not as though they are. So as I share this vision, would you see it? 
Would you see it? And then would you join us in giving your lives and to see, seeing that vision come to reality in our church in the lives of the next generation? And this is it. This is the vision. The vision is Jesus. Simply, powerfully, and only Jesus. We see an army. Some see bones, we see an army rising up. Hmm. We see kids and students in this church listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd speak their true identity over them, being able to resist the lies of the enemy and the culture that tries to let them sell their lives out to lesser stories. We see a generation who are culture discerners meaning they know when they see something good to be celebrated, they know when they see something evil to be resisted or avoided or even cast out. They know when they see the lost and need, that needs saved and they know what is broken that needs to be re restored. We see a generation rising up. We see a generation who is pursuing God with everything they have. And now to be bold, we see a generation who will step out of the American dream and into God's dream for his kingdom coming to earth. Stepping out of the American dream, which I would even call idolatry of secularism, consumerism, materialism, and individualism. They will live lives of service and sacrifice for their peers, and they will be an example to those of us that are older and will call us to greater levels of faith. That's the kind of generation I see rising up. I see an army, do you see it? I'd like to share our purpose statement one more time. And, and we really believe this was, this was a revelation from God to our team. The Next Gen Ministry at the Hills Church exists to equip and activate the next generation to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves by, this is where we're linking arms, engaging every family and elevating the community. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Hills Church, I hope you see. There's no kids there's no kids table in the kingdom of God. And we have spiritual warriors, intercessors who are contending for and leading the next-gen ministry to serve kids and students in this church. And as, as some of us are taking mental photos of this thinking about our lives, whether we have kids or not, and I, I, Jill, this, this vision is so beautiful, so compelling, and yet so grand. Help us for this moment, for the person who goes, I'm in on everything that you just said but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the first step is. Mm, yeah, we've wrestled with that as a team too. Sometimes God gives us this vision and we say, I wanna give my life to it. What do I do right now? Yeah. And that's really what discipleship is. It's listening to the voice of God and taking the next step. So would you do that with me? Parents, parents, some of you today 
I see you actually coming down in just a minute and saying, we've given our lives to a lesser story in our family and we're ready to be all in for the kingdom of God. I see people in our community that are saying, I don't know what you need, but I wanna invest in the next generation, plug me in wherever. So we're gonna ask God, what does he have to say to each one of you about that? We're gonna start with parents. Parents, would you just listen and ask God this question? God, how do you want me to use one of these hours this week to invest in the lives of my children and in their faith development? And then parents, I just ask you to obey what you heard. And for the entire church community, would you ask God this question? God, would you bring to my mind one kid or one student or one family? And when you have them in mind, ask God this question. What is one way that I could encourage or bless them this week? And then let's obey. I want to seal what you heard today by speaking a word of blessing over you and really a charge from Psalm 78. We will not hide the truths from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. May it be so for this generation and the next generation and the next generation, all for the glory of God. Amen. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for how you speak through your word. Thank you how your spirit speaks through your sons and daughters. How you've spoken today through kids, through students, through brothers and sisters, through our sister Jill. God, would you, would you give us ears to hear? And humble, softened hearts to respond. And for the person listening who... They, they're hearing this and they, they want in, but they feel like they're an outsider looking in because they haven't claimed faith in Jesus, put their trust in him. Lord, would you draw them closer to you? Pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.